This is Ron Stockton. Okay, this podcast is just for fun. If you want to be challenged and gain insight into how the world works, there are other podcasts that will do that. This is just some memories of a wonderful vacation that we took in 2013 to Windermere in England's Lake District. The Lake District is such a wonderful place. We took spectacular hikes and visited historic graveyards. I saw the grave of Wordsworth, a favorite Romantic-era poet. We also went to a stone circle in the spirit of Stonehenge. We were with our dear friend Sibylla Laurisch from Germany. She had been a family friend since 1980, and the three of us often took vacations together. She was in the Bundestag, but it was not in session in July, so she joined us for a week of travels. Jane and I had been to the Lake District once before, back in 1977. That was 36 years earlier. From the time I started graduate school until 1977, we had lived from hand to mouth. We had not taken a single vacation that did not involve staying with family or friends. But then in 1977, Jane completed her training as a physical therapist and took a job. Now we had two incomes. Wow. We decided to use our new bounty to spend a month in England. We dumped our kids with family, oh, excuse me, left our beloved sons in the loving care of family, and headed out. We had a great month back then, and the guys had a great time with grandparents and other relatives, but this time we had a very different experience. This time we saw the Queen on a totally unexpected visit. Hooray! We also climbed the mighty Helvellyn, the second highest mountain in England. Those are the two things I want to tell you about. These are some notes I made at the time. Are you ready? Here we go. The Queen came to visit when we were in Windermere in England's Lake District. Or should I say that the visit was by Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of Great Britain, England, and the British Dominions Beyond the Seas Queen, Defender of the Faith. A visit by the Queen is not just a visit, it's an event. Jane and I were spending a week in the area, hiking on the wonderful hills and otherwise enjoying our friends, enjoying ourselves. Our friend Sibylla from Germany had joined us. When the owner of our bed and breakfast told us about the royal visit, we were thrilled. The Queen was visiting three small towns, Kendall, Brockhole, and Windermere. In each place, children gave her a bouquet of flowers. In Windermere, they chose a boy who was recovering from cancer and a girl with another health condition. School children were dismissed for the visit, but only if their parents picked them up and returned them. The Queen was to arrive at 12 o'clock, but we were not sure what that meant. American politicians often run an hour late. We debated whether to show up at 12.15, but decided to get there on time. How fortunate that was. At exactly 12.04, two black limousines pulled up to the lakefront, escorted by motorcycle police. Security was fairly low-key. I did not see men with black suits and plugs in their ears the way you would in the United States. There were a few hundred people in the crowd. Jane thinks it was closer to a thousand. I was standing near the water, less than a hundred feet from the Queen. Others were across the road, up on a small mound behind us, where they would get a clear view. Several children waved Union Jacks. This was a big deal, capital B, capital D, something they would remember the rest of their lives. After the queen received the flowers, she walked onto the gangplank and onto the teal, the boat. 
where the reception party awaited. She is 87 and walks slowly, with small steps. But if her steps were slow, her concentration and charm were in prime mode. She was superbly attentive to her hosts. Each individual received a personal greeting and a blessed moment of royal attention. It was as if for one magic moment the rest of the world ceased to exist. The crowd was fun. Some young Spanish women were jumping up and down and shouting, Lorena, Lorena, which I think means queen. The woman next to me thought the queen was spending entirely too much time talking to the reception committee. She shouted, Yoo-hoo, your majesty, we're over here, wave to us. I was so glad that that woman did not have an American accent. Soon Anne, the Princess Royal, who had accompanied her mother, waved at us. She had a nice smile and seemed to be enjoying herself. She looked smashing in her bold yellow dress, yellow hat, and bouquet of yellow flowers. It complimented the Queen's turquoise dress. I was a bit surprised that Anne waved before the Queen did, but perhaps there's no protocol issue regarding who waves first. You can bet that if there had been a protocol, that arm would not have moved. The event started at exactly 12.04 and it ended at exactly 12.19. The Queen has dedicated herself to duty and this event was a royal duty. Everything the Queen did seemed casual and unhurried, but it fit a very precise schedule. The public got exactly 15 minutes of seeing the Queen. And then some silent clock declared that Windermere's 15 minutes were up. She turned to the crowd, smiled and waved, and went to the cabin of the boat. Everyone cheered and waved back. She did this several times a day, and, went, and it went off without a hitch. It left hundreds of people, including many foreigners, with stories and memories. The royal entourage then headed off for their tour of Lake Windermere. It is a beautiful lake surrounded by hills. At 10.6 miles long and 220 feet deep, it is the longest and deepest in the Lake District. <clears throat> to the people of Windermere, this was the biggest thing that had happened in years. But to the rest of the country, the big news of the day came at one of the earlier stops. Faye Batley, a 10-year-old schoolgirl in a reception line, asked the Queen if she wanted the royal nipper, then several days overdue, to be a boy or a girl. Uh, this was the first child of William and Kate, Prince George, the future king, although we didn't know that at the time. So this was another big deal, big D, capital D, big B, capital D. This was the kind of thing everyone in the country wanted to ask, and Faye did it. The queen gave a rather queenly answer. I don't think I mind. I would very much like it to arrive. I'm going on holiday. It seemed to me that she might have added, because I am so excited that I can't possibly leave until it's born but expressions of excitement are not the Queen's style. There was speculation in the press that she might not even see the baby until the end of summer since she is famously reluctant to leave Balmoral in Scotland once she gets there. In fact, she returned to Windsor Castle soon after the royal birth and greeted her new great-grandson and future successor the day after he left the hospital. Rumor has it that William is the favorite grandson, so that may have been the grandmother in here, in her. Or it may have been political advisors remembering that her slow response to Diana's death and her reluctance to leave Balmoral for London had damaged her image. 
Perhaps her duty required her to show excitement at the birth of Diana's grandchild. Whatever it was, <clears throat> Faye became an instant celebrity. She was featured on the morning talk show the next day, along with her parents and two siblings. She was beaming. Her mother said they had discussed what Faye would say if she got the chance, and she came up with her this on her own. When it was over, the three of us went to a local pub to have a pint and to discuss our experiences. As we sat there talking, we saw a very elderly man enter. He was well into his 90s. He wore a dark blue blazer with perhaps 30 medals pinned up and down his breast. A younger man helped him up the single step where some tables were. We could only imagine what went through his mind as he almost certainly stood at attention, perhaps unnoticed, as the queen passed. We wanted to go talk to him but decided against it. Okay, that's story one, the queen's visit. Here is story two, climbing the mighty Helvellyn. 36 years ago, half a life ago if you count that way, Jane and I were in England's Lake District. We stayed at a farmhouse bed and breakfast. After unpacking, we told the proprietor that we were interested in a hike. She said that Helvellyn was a great climb and that a path went right past the back door. With no preparation, no survey map, no food, no nothing, we set off to climb what turned out to be the meanest, nastiest mountain in the Lake District. The weather did not help. We could barely see in front of us because of the clouds. Within an hour, we faced an angry, an angry, bitterly cold wind and rain that drove us back to the farmhouse. To Jane, this was just a walk gone wrong, but to me, it was a humiliation. Since then, there has been a knot in my stomach every time I thought of Helvellyn, as if that mountain were laughing at me. You failed. You failed. Now, we were back in the Lake District, and I decided that it was going to be me or that mountain. This time, we were prepared. We checked survey maps, talked to an experienced climber, took water along, and walking sticks for Jane. I bought Kendall Mint Cake, a local energy bar for hikers to eat along the way, but then left it in my room. On the morning of the climb, I was geeked. I was humming the Rocky theme and saying macho things like, Hell of Ellen, you are going down. It was do or die. This mountain is the second highest in all of England. It rises 2,336 feet from its base to its peak at 3,117 feet. There is no rock face confronting climbers, but the walk is rugged and difficult. This was not going to be easy. There are two ways to approach the peak. The eastern approach is said to be more beautiful, but it is a longer climb and also involves the striding edge. Any reference to the striding edge should be accompanied by ominous organ music because of what this thing is. It is a thin, dangerous cliff that leads from the eastern side to the western side where the peak is. There are said to be markers indicating where various people have been blown off during strong winds. We were staying on the western side of Windermere, so we avoided the striding edge. The western approach is said to be less beautiful, but we found this hard to believe. The scenery was spectacular. Lake Theromare was below us, and the horizon stretched forever. The day was perfect for a climb, sunny with only a slight breeze. Often this area is clouded over and the scenery disappears. 
One local resident even made this comment, that most climbers never get to see the lake and the surrounding mountains or pastures. All the auguries were positive. There's no reason to bore anyone with the details of the walk. Let's just say that there were a variety of terrain, terrains, some sharp rises, some waving paths, some forests at the beginning. Other than the 2,000 foot rise, the most difficult part of the climb was the footing. There were rocks everywhere and uneven paths. It would have been very easy to tear out an ankle or trip, especially while we were coming down. Jane did slip once, but she just fell into a setting position and fortunately did no serious harm to anything other than her hands and her dignity. Unlike other climbs we have done, this one took us three hours to go up and three hours to get back down. Usually the ratio is closer to one hour up, 30 minutes down. We can thank the rocky paths for that ratio. One pleasant aspect of the walk were the sheep. These were the pretty gray-black sheep with white faces common in the area. They often stopped and look at, looked at us if to ask what we were doing in their pasture. Once they realized we had not come to eat their grass, they went back to their munching. When we got to the top, there was a spectacular view of the area down below. If you can, imagine the letter U, with the base being the peak of the mountain where we were standing, and the two legs of the U being two sharp cliffs leading out to the eastern approach. One was the striding edge. The other was the swirl edge. Down at the bottom of this was the Red Tarn, an extremely beautiful lake left behind by the glacial age. It was quite inspiring. Near the peak was a plaque honoring a naturalist named Goff, G-O-U-G-H, I guess that's Goff. He had climbed the mountain in 1804 in late winter with his dog, why he did such a stupid thing is not clear. Maybe he felt, felt that because he loved nature, it would love him back. Uh, that's not the way it works. Actually, he fell off the striding edge and was not found for three months. When a group made its way to the top, the faithful dog was still there, guarding her master's fallen body. The romance of the story was irresistible. Wordsworth wrote a poem about it, as did Coleridge. Even Sir Walter Scott got into the act, writing a poem entitled, I, Claim, I Climb the Angry Bow of the Mighty Helvellyn. A painter of that age, Benjamin Robert Hayden, created an idealized painting in 1842 of a noble-looking Wordsworth atop the peak. Wordsworth's version of what happened wrote of the unusual cry heard by the shepherd in that lonely place of fear above the silent tarn below. Of the dog, he wondered, how nourished here through such long time he knows who gave that love sublime. Scott commented to the dog, faithful to death, he wondered, how didst thou think that his silence was slumber? When the wind waved his garments, how oft didst thou start? He even imagined a struggle over the body, and how the dog, the much-loved remains of her master, defended and chased the hill fox and the raven away. It was enough to make generations of small children weep with a mixture of joy and sadness. When I told this story to our German friend, who had accompanied us on the walk, but had stopped just short of the peak. She said, the dog ate him. I was stunned. I just looked at her. How else could it survive for three months? 
She has been in the Bundestag for 11 years as, and has concluded that protestations of virtue often conceal baser motives. She could never have convinced Wordsworth, Coleridge, or Scott of it. They believed that the damage to the body was caused by ravens, who had, of course, to keep the fantasy consistent, been driven off by the faithful dog. Alas, a local newspaper reported a different version of reality. Shocking to relate, the dog had torn the clothes from his body and eaten him to a perfect skeleton. This was a wonderful, if difficult, climb. And now I could sleep in peace, knowing that I have climbed the angry brow of the mighty Helvellyn. Thanks for listening.